Well, it's um, a privilege, um, and I, I really mean this from the bottom of my heart, a real privilege uh, for you to have me here today. <laughs> my subject to you is humility. Um, I was going to give you that message, but seeing the auditorium isn't completely full, I'll save it for a larger crowd. I um, have been invited to speak to you um, specifically about uh, how we go about doing uh, one of those uh, four circles, the evangelism in the workplace uh, side of it. So I have to be completely upfront with you. I am an out-and-out evangelist. That's, that's what I do. Um, from the time I was converted, the very first Bible study I went to, I was converted on a Saturday night. I went to my first ever Bible study on a Tuesday. By that point, I'd read through the New Testament twice and most of the Old Testament. And um, we had our first ever Bible study that I ended up leading for some strange reason. And um, uh, at the end of it, they said, if you could ask God to give you any gift, if you ask him for anything, what would you ask him for? And uh, I remember saying, I want to be an evangelist. Now, um, interestingly, as I got more and more involved um, in that, I also realized I began to develop an equally strong passion to want to equip people in the workplace um, for the purpose of sharing their faith, because it seemed like a lot of what we often do as a church is try to take people out of the workplace and pull them away from it. And often what happens, especially if you have someone who's converted as an adult, they start off with this incredible passion and desire to tell people about Jesus. They're often very effective. And then by the time we finish discipling them about three or four years down the line, they've lost that passion. They're scared to speak and they don't say anything anymore. And that just seemed to be going the wrong way around. Um, and so um, one of the reasons I guess I may be here is simply because of that passion. And I'd like to reaffirm what Catherine and David have both been saying. God has called many of you particularly into a particular sphere of work. That is why the purpose for which you find yourself here. He has created and fashioned you, and he has put you there, and we are all witnesses, and we all live there. Now, the trouble is, what happens is when you get a speaker like me who's very passionate about evangelism, and please forgive me if I speak too quickly. I feel that's a very unjustified criticism, by the way, inspired by demonic forces. Um, Someone once uh, you know, said to me when I first started out, Michael, when you talk about Jesus, let your face shine like that of an angel, and when you talk about hell, your normal face will do. And because I'm doing the evangelism side and I'll be talking about Christ, I do tend to get a little bit passionate and excited about that. Now, the areas that we feel called to evangelize in as a ministry are the areas that people feel it is impossible to do evangelism in. Those tend to be the workplace, the political arenas, and so on. And I would like to begin by encouraging you to say, it may be hard, it may be difficult, you may have to be extraordinarily wise and ask God for huge insight and wisdom to be able to stand up in a lot of the secular arenas today and do some kind of evangelism, whether it is organized or even just having a conversation. But it is possible. It is possible. It's just very, very difficult. It's becoming increasingly difficult. But it's not impossible. Earlier this year, I was asked to um, speak in NATO headquarters. Uh, One of your generals was very kindly hosting me there on is tolerance a virtue, to do an outreach um, amongst uh, some of the senior military leadership there. And what is interesting is we live in a world where evangelism at many points seems to be becoming more difficult. Sometimes the atmosphere in which we are is incredibly hostile. You make one step move and they will simply shut you down and maybe shut everything else down. So you have to be incredibly careful. But there's something wonderful about that crucible that forces you to be focused and forces you to really think through what you believe and why. And most importantly, and both David and Catherine have picked up on this, and this is what I'm going to be majoring on, think through very carefully what words you're going to use. I can stand before you today and say, I have no fear of being shot, 
for sharing the gospel. But my greatest fear is that I'll get shot for actually preaching a bad gospel message. I mean, can you imagine how tragic that would be? You step into a very difficult setting and you preach the gospel badly and then you die. I mean, that would be, that's truly tragic. (laughs) And so it forces you to think through. And often when you're in the very, very secular settings, and um, just earlier this year I was at the um, European Parliament and um, they asked me to speak on without God, where is Europe heading? Because right now in the European Union, the countries that make up the European Union, the European Parliament is is pursuing a very radical secular agenda to exclude God. We've excluded God from the European Constitution. We're now trying the process of excluding from all institutions. And the question is suddenly coming, wait a minute, if we do this, where will we end up? What will happen? It's very, very difficult and it's tough to speak in those settings. And many of you get to work and live in those settings. I'm just simply a guest who comes in and out. But many of you, that's your daily bread and butter. And I want to thank you for the fact that many of you are prepared to work and live in those settings. That's where God has called you. That's where he's placed you. And the question is, okay, so where do we take it from there? Now, the great difficulty is, as Catherine has said, is that the most common thing here is, yeah, okay, well, look, God, Michael, maybe he's given you some kind of gifts here, but he certainly hasn't given those things to me. And so, as a matter of fact, the best way I can serve God in my workplace is by saying nothing. Because if I open my mouth, I'll make it worse. And one of the most common fears I find of people are not sharing their faith in the workplace simply because they think I will actually make this worse. And that is a very real danger. Now, the other thing that comes alongside of that, of course, um, is the fear of making it worse, is also the thing of saying, I have no idea what to say. And the language that I would employ is simply not going to make sense here. So I only have really two points that I'm going to try and make with you, and then maybe if we have time, we'll see if we can have a short time of Q&A actually during at the end of this particular session for you to ask me questions. But the two things I want to talk about are, one, our use of words, and two, our use of questions. Let me start with the second one first, because our learning to ask questions is an incredibly simple process. We, in all the training that we do, when we're trying to equip people for ministry in the workplace, we spend most of our time trying to teach people how to ask the questions. Most of us don't know what the questions are anymore. We've forgotten those questions. We've stopped asking those questions. The amazing thing now is, and on Thursday night I was speaking at Berkeley, and on Wednesday night I was speaking at Stanford, just before I flew here on Friday night, and now I'm speaking to you today. I speak here tomorrow. I'm doing something on Monday. I get home on Wednesday. I've got a couple of days at home, and then I go to the Czech Republic. And so uh, I'm just saying this at one point because I'm incredibly tired, and those of you who have heard me speak before will realize that actually I'm speaking very slowly. And so I <laughs> just, uh, just want to encourage you with that. But the thing about asking questions is everybody can learn to do this. It's something that happens. When I was first converted and I read through the Gospels, as I said, I read through the, Gosp- the New Testament twice in the space of a few days, I, I was very worried about the person of Christ. He seemed to be a consummate politician in that everybody came and asked him a difficult question. He answered a totally different one. I thought, this isn't fair. <laughs> now, I've spent now an awful lot of time studying these Gospels, and I realized that Jesus Christ didn't avoid a single question that was put to him. But he answered the real question. You know, many of the questions that we get asked, even as Christians, are often the wrong question. And many of the questions that Jesus was asked, and Jesus was asked questions by people who hated him, by people who were indifferent to him, by people who couldn't care, by people who were disturbed by him, by sometimes by people who, who were frightened of him. But what Jesus learned to do very quickly was to discern where the heart of that question was, and that is what he always spoke to. It's incredible how he did this. Let me just take just one example. Now, Many of you have already come up and said, look, thank you for, I've heard your talk on conversational apologetics, and so I simply don't want to repeat all of that material here, because many of you already, A, heard it, and B, it's easily available on DVD and CD. But asking questions, let's take the question when Jesus was asked, 
Good teacher, will you please tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me? Now, I don't know if you all remember that question. This looks on the face of it a very, very, very simple question. Okay, the simple question is this. Hey, look, Jesus, I'm the younger brother. My older brother has inherited everything. My parents have died. That was the custom. And I'd like to say as an older brother, I believe this is a very biblical system. <laughs> and he's making a cry. He's asking Jesus to intervene. Now, on the face of it, it seems to be a cry for economic justice, doesn't it? This isn't fair. But it's this cry for this kind of justice which unmitigated has destroyed huge parts of the Middle East and indeed destroys most of the world today. Jesus looks at him, if you remember, and says, you need to be careful of unsatiable desires. Now, before he says that, he asks him a question. Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator between you? It's a very interesting question. Jesus responded nine times out of ten to every question with another question. The reason is, is that it forces people to think. It forces them to open up within their assumptions. It forces them to think through very carefully what they've said. And at this particular instance, it also drives them to a point of authority. Why are you asking me this? You know, I don't know if any of you as Christians have ever been felt you've been put on a spot by an atheist or agnostic or someone who's slightly antagonistic to you, asking you a question, goading you to make a mistake. Have you ever felt that you've been in that situation? You know, we evangelicals, we make an expertise of walking into those traps. When we get asked those questions, we need to take a leaf out of Jesus' book. Here, Jesus asks a question to drive the, point, the guy back to a point of authority. Who's given me this authority? Implication is, is it God, in which case will you listen to me? Or is it from you, in which case will you listen to me? Either way, he's asking him, are you really listening? Are you really interested? Do you really want to know? So many of the questions we get asked in a cynical culture, and we live in an incredibly cynical culture. Cynicism is largely driven by the media. It's incredible. There have been countless psychological studies that are done over the last 30 years that all point to this. As a matter of fact, way back in 1977, the Detroit Free Press reported on a study that had been done where they took away people's televisions for a month. The Detroit Free Press offered $500 to 200 families before it could find five families that would agree to give up TV for a month. Can you imagine that? That was in 1977. That's when $500 was serious money. Okay, that's before the dollar began to slide in value and the economy went down the tubes. Okay, now $500 to me today is a lot of money. As a matter of fact, when I was speaking at Berkeley, one of the students there very kindly, while I was standing at the front talking to the students at the end, asking them questions, had left my wallet in my bag downstairs and relieved me of the $200 I had in my wallet. <laughs> 500, I'll be even more upset. That's a lot of money. They had to offer that money to 200 families before they would find five that would agree to give up television for a month. The families that gave up TV for a month were monitored. Do you know what happened? They reported increased boredom, irritability, and domestic violence increased. There was a huge increase in the use of tranquilizers, and one woman said, and I quote, it was terrible. We did nothing. My husband and I talked. We live in an incredible cynical culture where we are simply addicted to the media. Cynicism just leads to misanthropy and complete distrust. So most of the culture you're dealing with is incredibly cynical, which is why asking questions becomes so important. Jesus drives this guy back to a point of authority. When you're asked questions by a cynical group, you need to learn to ask and respond with a question. Okay? The reason is you're forcing them back to think through, do you really want me to answer this? Let's take another instance in Jesus' life in Luke chapter 20, when he was asked the question, by whose authority are you doing those things? Do you remember this question? Why do you act this way? Jesus looked at them and he said, can I ask you a question? John the Baptist, whose authority did he have? Now, that was a very good question for that group. They get together, this little religious group of VIPs, and they begin asking themselves questions. Hey, wait a minute. 
If we say John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, they say, everyone will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say his authority came from men, the people will despise us because everyone will believe it came from heaven. So they turned around and they said, we don't know. Is that true? No, that's not true. They think they know, they're wrong, but they say, we don't know. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, hmm, I don't know either. He says, you will not answer me. I will not answer you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't answer the question because they're not interested in the truth. You know, when it comes to the whole issue of evangelism in the workplace, we Christians, we often feel that somehow all we simply, simply do is just sit back and we just take whatever questions are given to us as requests for information and when the request comes, we simply spout forth. It was Francis Schaeffer who said the reason he didn't like seminaries wasn't because they didn't teach the students the answers, but because he didn't teach them what the questions were. We live in a culture where most people don't understand what their questions are and most of the people, even in the workplace, who ask us those questions. The reason they're asking those questions is the motive, the heart, where it's coming from is a completely different place. Jesus had to deal with it. He responded by asking questions. May I suggest to you that we maybe need to learn to ask questions. What are the questions you should be asking in your place of work? Go through the Bible, highlight every question Jesus asked, and ask what is the lesson I should learn from this? Your life will be completely changed and transformed. We had a girl who came and she did uh, four days of training with us and we spent four days. Most all the training we do is we teach people to ask questions. They come to us expecting to do apologetics training with us and what we'll do is give them all the answers and they'll look like they're really clever. We just simply teach them how to ask questions. At the end of four days she said, you know what, I'm really moved by this. I, I'm going to go back to my country. And she says, I know some of the people who own my country. She said, for the first time I feel like I work for them. I feel like I can actually share my faith with them and I'm going to be asking them some of these questions. But I may not be able to answer them all. So if I get stuck, can I ask them to ring you? So I said, okay. She said, great, can I have your cell phone number? I thought, ah, oh, that was very clever. Anyway, nine months later, I'm speaking at a conference. I'm about to address 800 Iranians. And my cell phone goes off, and very few people have that number, and I just simply can't recognize who's calling me. It just says, unknown number on my Blackberry. And I think, who's this? And I ring it. I answer it. And this guy starts talking to me. Ah, oh, Michael, I'm so glad to get here of you. I hear you're very busy. Thank you for taking my call. And he just launches into a conversation. And I'm spending the first 10 minutes going, who are you? And why are you ringing me? So I'm sort of doing my best to bluff, and all of a sudden he drops this girl's name. I think, I know exactly who you are. He says, you know, this girl, she spent time with you. She's been asking these questions. They're very good. She, he, this guy said, look, if billions of dollars would make me happy, I'll be the happiest man in this world. I've met presidents, and I've met prime ministers. I've looked into their eyes, searching for the ocean, and all I've seen are puddles of understanding. He said, I'm desperate. If I don't find some answers soon, then that's it. I can't stay on this planet much longer. So for an hour... I just ask him questions. At the end of the hour, he breaks down into tears. At the end of the phone, he says, you know what? He says, I've, many people I ring, I've, I've tried to speak to, and they start telling me what the answers are. That for the first time in my life, I understand, feel like someone understands the question. He says, I understand you're a busy man. You name any country in the world, I'll fly there if you'll give me three hours of your time. So three months later, we agree on a country, we agree on a location, we meet up, we spend three hours together. I don't think the guy was ever used to having anyone stand up to him before. So I asked him a whole bunch of questions, disagreed with him a few times. And at the end of it, he, said, he, broke, he again, he just broke down into tears a second time. He said, my country needs to hear what you have to say. If you will come to my country, I will fly you there. I will introduce you to the rulers and leaders of my country because they need to hear what you're telling me about Jesus. So he said, next time you're in this region, 
why don't you ring me? So next time I was in the region, I rang him. He said, look, just go to the airport. There's a first-class ticket waiting for you at the desk. Pick up the ticket. Come here. You'll be on seat 1A. We'll meet you at the airport. We'll bring you here. I'll look after you for three days. So I go to the airport. I pick up the ticket. I hand over my passport, and they say, you don't have a visa, a valid visa for this country. I said, I didn't know I needed one. They said, no visa, no entry. I said, look, this guy promised he would get me in. They said, that is impossible. I said, please, please, let me on the plane. So they give me my boarding card. I go to the gate. I hand over my boarding card. They take my passport. They flick through it. They say, where's your visa? I said, I don't have a visa. They said, no visa, no entry. You're not allowed on the plane. I said, please let me on the plane. Anyway, they let me on the plane. (laughs) I'm sitting on the plane. It's about 1 a.m., and we're halfway there, and I suddenly realize a couple of things. Number one, I only know this guy's first name. <laughs> number two, I don't have his phone number. And number three, we weren't very clear about how he was going to pick me up. Have you ever felt like you've done something really stupid? <laughs> I'm a spiritual man, so I was praying. Quite high-pitched prayers, if I remember correctly. <laughs> asking God for forgiveness and that I may be let out of the country alive. You know, I've done a lot of ministry um, now. I've been working with RZIM, or RZIM, which would be the correct pronunciation. And just on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen, I'd like to ask you to reconsider this mindless rebellion of yours and rejoin the motherland. Did I also mention that I was a prophet too? Anyway. (laughs) This guy picked me up from the airport. He paid for everything. He wouldn't let me pay for a single thing. When we're sitting at the airport three days later to go home, and he decided he would fly back with me so that we could have more time on the plane together just talking. We were sitting there, and I said, and some tea came, and I pulled out some of the local currency. I said, please let me pay for the tea. You must at least do You paid for everything. He said, I would be ashamed and dishonored if you paid for the tea. He said, it will bring dishonor on my family. I said, how could I bring dishonor on your family by paying for the tea? <laughs> and there were little tea bags with little labels on the end, and he picked up the label. He said, you see this? I said, yes. He said, I own this company as well. <laughs> he said, you're a guest in my country. It will bring shame on me and my family to have you pay for this. That girl is 28 years old. She's just opened up a whole nation where there are a few thousand believers to the gospel. Because she was bold enough to ask some questions in the place where God had called her to work. How about you? God has placed you in parts of this world, in connections and relationships where I don't have contact. I'm never even going to go there. No one's going to go there. You're the witness. He put you there. You know, doing this is hard. You'll hear about Catherine talking about her programs and David talking about um, his program. We run programs and training in Oxford. You know what? It costs money. It costs time. It's sacrifice. It's hard. But if you're sitting here wondering maybe that maybe your Christian life feels a little bit shallow and you're missing out on something, you may well be. Because it's hard work. It's going to take time, it's going to take money, it's going to take effort. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. And if you want to do this in your workplace, you're going to have to learn to say sorry very, very quickly. But you may be missing out on something that God has for you that may make sense of everything else. Learn to ask questions. Jesus wasn't playing games with people when he responded to questions with questions. He was making them think. He was brilliant.
we can learn from that. Secondly, words. We evangelicals do speak our own internalized language. I don't know how we invented it completely. The whole point of theology is to be able to give words to express things clearly so people can understand what we're talking about. Instead, it's become a cryptic shorthand that somehow needs a code breaker to crack it. Look, let's supposing I stood in front of you and said, look, some people misunderstand evangelism. The reason for this is that although they, the reason they understand uh, evangelism is because of their own personal prerogative mouthesis, with the consequence that the taint and stigma of both their former associations and diversions have irredeemably and irretrievably invalidated their position and revealed in public revelations and recriminations of a profoundly embarrassing and ultimately indefensible character. Now, that sentence is pure grammatical sense. There's nothing grammatically wrong with it at all. As a matter of fact, if you look at the meaning of every single one of those words, you'll actually be able to understand what I've said because it is perfectly ling linguistically permissible. Were you able to follow it? And yet, so much of our theological speak is exactly like that. So our little phrases, you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and we're redeemed and whatever, these are, I have no problem with the theology that's behind that. It's just that those words don't mean anything to anybody. I love John Piper. Um, I sat on his board for about five years when they had a ministry in Europe. Um, you know, uh, if, you, if, you, if, if you've never read a John Piper book, just put up your hand. Don't be ashamed. If you've never read one of his books, shame on you. He's a far stronger Calvinist than I am, but I don't blame him for that. God made him that way. He had no choice in the issue. <laughs> but John Piper likes to say good news that's not explained. It's not only not news, it's not, even, it's not good. It's not good, it's not even news. Good news is not explained. It's not only not good, it's not even news. And most of us, sadly are really struggling to find the vocabulary and the words to use. We have to rethink through our language. Here's the really challenging part. Even the common words you want to use to explain the gospel, most people don't understand what they are. Let's take the idea of love. We Christians use that word all the time, God of love. What do we mean by that? What does love mean? You know, when my wife and I lived up in the um, center, cultural epicenter of Great Britain, a town called Worksop, um, which is sort of like an ex-coal mining community. 25% unemployment, very low education, no sophistication whatsoever. As a matter of fact, my wife was once in a supermarket and there was a guy in front of her and he was talking to someone behind the delicatessen counter in the local supermarket. And the person in front of her was saying, um, I have some vegetarians coming for dinner. I've never met a vegetarian before. What can I feed them? And the guy said, well, we've got this Brussels pate. You know, um, you know, thinking that this was made out of Brussels as in the vegetable, whereas Brussels pâté is a form of, well, it's three different types of liver. <laughs> so we were living there. <laughs> and it, people expect me to believe in a God of love. No, no, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> and we inherited a, a, a youth group. We didn't want this particular youth group. And I, I mean that, honestly. I don't, I, look, I, youth is not... Some people are great with kids and doing youth meetings. Uh, to say I struggle in that context would be an understatement. But we felt so sorry for this group because they, they found themselves complete without a leader. We thought we have to do something. So we pulled them together. There were 13 people in this youth group. They were all women, all aged between 13 and 17. I can put my hand on my heart and stand before you and say it was the most scary audience I've ever stood between. <laughs> So, 
First day, we meet, I give them all a blank sheet of paper. There aren't even lines on the paper and a pen. I say, I want you to write down what you want to talk about most in this group. There was only one question that came up on every single piece of paper. Do you know what it was? About love and marriage. What is love? What does it mean to fall in love? And why get married? You fall in love, you get married, you fall out of love, you get divorced. Surely not better to get married in the first place. That was the only thing. So I said, okay, we're going to talk about love and marriage next week. I spent the next five days praying and fasting. I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do, and I was terrified of them. So we all come back, and we sit down in a circle on the floor, and I say, I want you all to close your eyes. I say, I want you to imagine the following scenario with me. I want you to imagine that tomorrow you go to school, and the boy you like most comes up to you and says, I love you. How do you feel? You you grins from here to here. Then I said, now I want you to imagine the next day you go back to school, you hear the same boy telling a different girl, I love you. Now how do you feel? Every smile disappeared. I said, so I got them to open their eyes, and I said, you see, the words I love you mean nothing unless they're exclusively and morally committed to you. Outside of that moral framework of exclusivity and commitment, those words mean nothing. That's why those great British philosophers, the Spice Girls, in... (laughs) in one of their songs, had, a, had, a, had a, a chorus that said, don't tell me you love me, just tell me you'll be there. What's that about? Commitment. The words we want to employ, we don't understand what these words mean anymore. Let's stick with just love, and I'm going to give one more illustration after this, and then I'm going to finish because I'm fairly merciful. And what time am I meant to finish? Ten minutes ago? One of the most common things I get asked, and one of the things I love doing, especially when when we're speaking directly in the workplace, when we're not training people to ask questions there, but someone's been brave enough to set up something for us to speak to, is to speak about God of love, God of judgment. Something like that. Or are Christians arrogant? That's a great talk for a bank, I found, apart from can I afford to be moral, which is all of a sudden my most single requested talk in almost every financial institution around the world. The reason we struggle with the issue of love and judgment is we don't know what love is. Even most Christians struggle with the issue that a God of love is going to judge us. I don't know how many of you have seen Pride and Prejudice. Have any of you seen the six-part BBC adaptation of their novel by Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice? Those of you who have will notice the striking resemblance between myself and Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Those of you unfamiliar with the plot of the story, it goes like this. Mr. Darcy is an incredibly wealthy, handsome (laughs) man who falls in love with this lady called Elizabeth. Eventually, at one point, they come together. He looks at her and he says, it will not do. My feelings cannot be repressed any longer. You must allow me to tell you how much I ardently admire and love you. And gentlemen, let me tell you, that line, it's a winner. (laughs) However... He goes on to say that he loves her against his will, against his reason, and against his own better character. So then, therefore, she rejects his declaration of love, and because he's a man, he can't understand why. So he asks, I may ask how you so easily reject me. She says, you told me that you loved me against your will, against your reason, and against your own better character. In other words, that you loved me against all better judgment.
You see, the words, I love you, are meaningful only when the person knows you. Most of us are so desperate for love, we go around projecting an image of ourselves, hoping that people will fall in love with it. Because we want their love. The trouble is they fall in love with the image, not the reality. This is why the very rich, the very famous, the very powerful, very beautiful, find it hard sometimes to make real relationships. People fall in love with the image as opposed to the reality. I can promise you right now that if you're living in this world and no one knows the real you, they don't know your weaknesses and your failings and your no one knows the real you, you are one of the most lonely people walking the face of this planet. I can also guarantee you that if you're sitting in this room right now and you, there are some people here who really know you, they know your faults, your weaknesses, your shortcomings, your failures, they know the real you. In other words, they have a proper judgment about you and yet they love you. Those are the most meaningful single relationships you have and when things go wrong and when things are failing, those are the very people you go to and who you talk with. You're not alone. Love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment but only in the presence of it. The words, I love you, are only meaningful when the person who is speaking to them knows you. That is precisely the way God loves us. He knows all of our failings, all of our shortcomings, all of our weaknesses. He has not saved us because he thought we were wonderful and there was something inherently beautiful within us. There was no such thing in us whatsoever. He knows us, yet he loved the world. You know, we talk about compassion a lot in this world, and we live in a compassionless age, and let me tell you why. Compassion means, from Latin, with passion. It means you make a moral judgment about something, but you're moved to the depths of your being to do something about it. You have compassion on the poor. When you look at poverty, you say, that is wrong. It shouldn't be like that. You pass moral judgment, and you're moved to the depths of your being to do something about it. You have compassion in the face of racism. When you look at racism, you say, that is wrong. It shouldn't be like that. But you're not simply happy to moralize and theorize. You're moved to the depths of your being, and you're prepared to do something about it. We worship a gracious and compassionate God who has looked into the human heart and said, that is wrong. And he has moved to the depths of his being to do something about it, and that's why we have the cross. The idea of love without judgment is meaningless. There aren't two sides to God's character, the soft loving side and the judgmental side, and somehow they're in opposition to each other. Those things can only be understood in light of each other. Otherwise, it makes love itself meaningless. And we need to somehow recapture the depths of these words, the very words we want to use. Sometimes as Christians, we ourselves don't understand. Are you with me? When we employ this language, we have to think through what do these words mean, and this is why we need that theological depth that Catherine was talking about it. Without it, our words are meaningless. They don't mean anything to most of the people we're talking to. John Stott said that the words peace and love are two common monosyllables pregnant with theological substance. For most people, those two words aren't pregnant with anything at all. We have to recover our use of words. Love, even God. What does that mean? I had a very good friend who used to always ask the question. I think it's been picked up by many people now and asked. He was one of the top executive. But when people told him, I don't believe in God and his workplace, he used to say, that's interesting. What kind of God don't you believe in? He would listen to them for five minutes and then say, yeah, I agree with you. I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> what are the words? You know, that takes serious reflection. The reason why evangelism in the workplace has become so hard is most of the words we want to use are misunderstood. If the words you're using are leading people to conclude that your God is bigoted, judgmental, filled with hatred, and so on, or that Christians are those people, where does that list appear in the fruit of the Spirit? 
If the very words you are using are betraying you, there's something wrong with the words. Sometimes there's something wrong with the question. That's why we need to learn to ask questions. And sometimes there's things that are wrong with the words. And we need to learn to be, how we be careful with words. I can remember when I was seven years old living in the Middle East, I used to pick... I don't know how this happened. I had this moment of epiphany and I entertained myself for two weeks by doing this. Every, every break, I'd go into the playground, I'd find two or three children playing together, I'd pick out another seven or eight-year-old. That was how old I was. I'd pick out one of my colleagues and I'd say to them, can I ask you a yes or no question? They'd say, sure. I'd say, does your mother know you're stupid? <laughs> now, you see the problem with the question. If they say yes, they're stupid and their mother knows. If they say no, they're stupid, their mother doesn't know. If they say, I don't know, they're so stupid, they can't even understand the question. <laughs> Okay, it's called a faulty dilemma. Oh, com- sorry, a complex question. Do you know every type of faulty logic that exists, and that's one of them, is actually found in the Bible? Every type of rational faulty logic that exists is actually put to Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus spent so much time defining words and redefining questions. He had to deal with that faulty logic. I used to teach logic at university. I still do sometimes. I've often maintained teaching logic is the secular equivalent of speaking in tongues. The difference is that when you teach logic, even angels can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> We have to have to do that. Let me just finish with one last story. The trouble with these, the kind of talk I've given, and it is potentially a huge weakness, is people think, wow, Michael, this sounds like all the time your life is amazing. In other words, everything you touch simply turns to gold. Now, that simply isn't true. There are lots of failures, but there's an important lesson I want you to learn even in the midst of that. A couple of years ago, um, I was in South Africa, and a member of our board organized a meeting. He owns part of Wall Street, and so we pray for him now. He's obviously a pauper. And um, uh, incredibly successful New York businessman, and he went and, with his wife and family, and he wanted to go and work in prisons in Africa for three or four years. And so he really, we looked at his family, and that's what he did. Now, obviously, because of his huge financial background, he got to know almost every CEO and CFO in the city in which he was living. And the city in he was living, many financial corporations were headquartered there. So he said to me, Michael, look, next time you're here, I want to organize an event at my golf club. I'll pay for dinner okay, for 60 people. Okay, and he said, I'll invite 60. Hopefully, we'll get 30. I'll pay for dinner at the golf club. I'll have it shut to the public. Okay, and I want you to come and speak to them. We agreed on a title, Finding Certainty in an Uncertain World was the title we picked. He says, and I don't care what you do, but I want you at the end of your talk to challenge them about where they are in relationship to Christ. Just before the meeting started, this guy came up and he said, you're about to make a huge mistake. He said, the people in this particular city are incredibly skeptical and incredibly cynical. He said, most of the people who who are coming tonight, indeed all of them are, are going to be white, highly educated Westerners. He says, tonight you're probably going to end up driving more people away from the gospel than calling them to it, so I really ask you to reconsider. And that's exactly what you want to hear as a speaker just before you stand up to speak. <laughs> so with, the, with those words ringing in my ears, I stood up to speak. 137 people came, not 60. They had two tables out in the lobby and had opened the doors. So I stood up and I spoke. Now, there have been two instances in the last five years, I would say, where I've wished the ground would swallow up open up and swallow me while I've been speaking. This was one of those instances. The opening joke fell as flat as anything. There was zero response from the audience. They just looked shocked. And things got worse from there. I could feel my face burning. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You feel like you're... I mean, thankfully, this is having a tan is useful, but I was inside getting redder and redder and redder. 
Okay, I was loosening my tie. The sweat was, was coming. It was without a shadow of doubt I would feel probably the single worst presentation I've ever given in my entire life. So I did what I do when you are really failing. I tried to cut things short a little bit and tried to be very clear about the nature of the gospel and the difference it actually made. And we were dealing, everybody was there was in the workplace, so everything was about where we find our identity and our sense of worth and is there such a thing as certainty and what does it mean in the kind of troubled times in which we live. And then I came to the end and I thought, I'm going to have to now pray because this is what this guy said. I don't care what you do so long as you end with a prayer. So I said, I'm now going to pray. And I said, and if while you've been here, you feel you'd just like to pray this prayer, that's fine. If you don't, that's also fine. Don't feel under any pressure. But I'm just going to pray this. And if you mean it, just echo it in your heart. I almost heard the equivalent of an audible voice in my ear saying, why bother? So I'd love to say that I stood there with great faith and conviction and prayed some kind of amazing you know, spirit-inducing, faith-building prayer, but it really wasn't like that at all. It was a prayer that when I said amen, it was like, good Lord, get me out of here. <laughs> well, the guy, Peter, one of the most senior people on our board, stood up, and he said, there are cards on the table. I didn't know this. He said, as you can see, if you please, everyone take that card. He says, you'll see there's a line for you to put your name, your address, and your phone number. We'd love it if you would fill it out. Then you'll see that there's a, there are five boxes under that, A to E, I'd like you to rate tonight's talk A, excellent, E, terrible. I'm sitting there thinking, oh. <laughs> Then he said, there are five vertical boxes below that. Number one, I prayed the prayer and I gave my life to Jesus Christ, ending up with box E. Please never invite me to an event like this again. And he talked through everything, and when he came to the last one, he said, look, we don't want to bother you. We don't want to force anything on you. If you come here tonight and this isn't really for you, then tick box E, and we will make sure we just don't bother you because we really don't want to do that. Well, I got home at around 2 a.m. Well, the house that we're staying in, my family were with me on this particular trip. And I think I lay awake in bed. Last time I looked at my watch, it was 4.30. My wife woke up at 7 and woke me up. How did it go? How did it go? And I decided to cry. I said, it was terrible. I said, it was really, and it was terrible. Look, he's going to probably ring this morning and maybe want to speak to me, but I can't take that call. I said, please, will you take that call? I, I'm just not up to it. I didn't get fall asleep until 4.30. So sure enough, an hour later he rings and comes, wakes me up again and says, he won't talk to me, he will only talk to you. So I'm sitting there thinking this guy's one of our biggest financial contributors. He's one of the longest serving members of our board and I'm now preparing my resignation speech and you have to believe me when I say this. I'm not, I'm not at this point egging this in any way whatsoever. I, uh, I had no idea what I was going to say. I picked up the phone, he said, Michael, it's Peter. No doubt you want to know what happened last night. I said, well, what happened? He said, 47 ticked the first box. I prayed that prayer and gave my life to Jesus Christ tonight. I said, that, that's not bad. <laughs> he said, are you kidding? He says, that's brilliant. He says, 28 people ticked the second box. Box number two was I didn't pray the prayer. I want to join a Bible study group. Four people ticked box E. Never invite me to this event again. Two of those became Christian on the next day. And six weeks later, Peter rang me. He set up the Bible study groups himself, all 28. By the end of the six weeks, had come to Christ. There were 137 people there. Almost all the non-Christians who came were brought there with a friend. Peter said, I think about 90, 95% of everybody was there either accepted Christ or joined the Bible study group. Peter and his wife 
prayed and fasted for five days before that meeting. They're not built like me. They're naturally thinner than I am. But I, I, you know, I have a family motto. Every family should have a motto. My family motto is life is too short to be thin. <laughs> I mean, they, they were thin when it came to that dinner. They could hardly eat anything. If you fasted for five days and you try and sit down and eat a big four-course dinner, let me tell you, you're not going to get very far through it. They staked every relationship they had on that meeting. And they called on the Lord as best as they could. If you're thinking that God can't use you in the workplace for the purposes of evangelism because you're not powerful enough, you're not clever enough, you're not great enough, then you still haven't got the gospel because the gospel's not about us. It's about God. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual warfare. And without that, we have nothing. I have not let the recording of that talk be distributed anywhere. It was recorded, and I had it destroyed. One of the reasons why I'm a Calvinist when it comes to evangelism, there's no way you could possibly attribute any of those conversions in that room to a single word that was said that night. Don't get the wrong medal in your head. It's not about eloquence. It's not about cleverness. It's not about being quick-witted on your feet. It is about the other things you saw. They're about living your life, knowing where you're called to, really enjoying it, giving it your all. And if you find that's the case, you will win people's respect and their confidence. You will find times where you have opportunity to speak, where you should probably be asking questions, an opportunity to step out, where you may even be, have the opportunity to pull something together or invite people to something. But without prayer and fasting, without dependence on the Holy Spirit, I can guarantee it will fail. With it, you may see something unusual. Well, you've listened to me speak long enough, and so what we need to do now is sit and eat. I'm wondering if I could actually close out my, my talk with a prayer. Is that... Okay, would that be appropriate? Father, I want to thank you for the men and women in this room. Lord, you know each one of them by name. Father, you know their fears, their hopes, their dreams, their desires. Lord, even their reason for being here today. And Father, I want to pray for them. Lord, that by the end of today, Lord, even though they may not feel they have the answers or are still grappling with the questions, Lord, are wondering about what words to use, how they should live, how they should engage, and where they should go from here. Lord, I pray, Father, that you, Lord, will guide and lead each one. Father, I pray against apathy, Lord, and a belief that you're simply not interested in this world and somehow your gospel is not effective anymore in the culture and the world in which we live. Instead, Father, I pray that you will help us to walk with integrity and with wisdom. Lord, that we would be dependent on you. Lord, that we may see you at work, Father, in the work that you have placed us and called us to. Father, we pray that our lives may reflect you and speak of you and tell of you. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will help and continue to smooth off those rough edges, Lord, so that we may learn to be graceful in the face of opposition. Lord, that we may not be belligerent or pig-headed or arrogant. But, Father, instead, the full fruit of the Spirit may be seen in our lives. Lord, that your name may be ready on our lips for when the opportunity comes. And Lord, that we would not shrink back or be ashamed. Father, we thank you that even though we fail and we fall short, that the power of your gospel isn't dependent on us, but rather, Lord, your strength is often made perfect in our weakness. And we pray, Lord, for your strength and your power to be seen and felt and your gospel to be received in this world. Amen.
Well, you've done very well. No one's fallen asleep. That's a first for me. Thank you very much. Um, please do and bless your lunch. I do, um, I'll hand back over to David. And the good news is you don't have to hear from me again for the rest of today. God bless you.